1 Kings chapter number 12 this morning, and I'd like to begin reading at verse number 25. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse number 25. If you're a student of the Bible, uh, you might already know sort of where we're at. Solomon has died, and his son Rehoboam has ascended the throne. And due to foolishness on Rehoboam's part, the kingdom has been split in fulfillment of God's word. And uh, a man by the name of Jeroboam, who is a usurper to the throne, he has no rightful claim on the throne, he has peeled off ten of the tribes of Israel, and they've uh, broken away from the southern two tribes. And now, uh, for the first time in Israel's history, there is a divided kingdom. There is the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, we read about this man, Jeroboam. He is the first king over the uh, divided uh, kingdom, over the northern portion of Israel. And uh, I think, uh, probably it'd be accurate to say, he's the most wicked king. Uh, that Israel had. Certainly he is the source of much of the iniquity in the northern kingdom of Israel. And I want you to notice very carefully what he did. I think it informs us a little bit about what the devil tries to do in our life. First Kings chapter 12, verse 25. The Bible says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein, and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah, and he offered upon the altar. Uh, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel. And he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness this past week, for the strength that you gave us. Help us, Lord, as we train our attention upon your word to do so reverently in a spirit and a heart of, of humility and self-examination. Lord, even beyond us examining ourselves, we ask that you would search us and try us, that you would show us, uh, let us see if there's any wicked or unclean way within us, and show us, Lord, what in our life might not be lined up to your word, and help us, Father, to be obedient unto you as you seek to deal in our hearts and minds. And Lord, we know that you are up to the task. For Lord, you are up to any task. So we ask that you would do this work in our hearts and minds. Speak to hearts this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we said this morning, when we look at Jeroboam, the first king over the northern kingdom of Israel, we find in him in many ways the source and the germ of most of the idolatry and iniquity of the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel was a kingdom that was defined by idolatry. In fact, most Bible historians will tell you that when you study these two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, 
that Judah had a lot of bad kings, but it had some good kings as well. But if you study the history of that northern kingdom of Israel, you will not find nary one single king that followed the Lord. Invariably, they all led them deeper and deeper and deeper into idolatry. And it begins with this man by the name of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the child of one of the servants of Solomon. He was a man that Solomon had uh, nurtured and had raised up and had promoted. But when he reaches a certain age, because uh, he is perceived as a threat to Rehoboam, he flees into the land of Egypt and stays there until Solomon dies. When Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam assumes the throne. And uh, the question is, what kind of a king is Rehoboam going to be? And King uh, Rehoboam, instead of speaking gently to the people, speaking kindly to the people, he instead doubles down. He tells them, we got a new sheriff in town. You thought my father was rough. I'm going to be even more rough on you. And when he said that, that opened the door for Jeroboam uh, to be able to peel away the loyalty and the hearts of the children of Israel. But uh, Rehoboam, or Jeroboam, excuse me, he was not a legitimate claimant to the throne. In fact, there's a word I think we could use here that'd be appropriate. He was a usurper of the throne. He did not have a legitimate claim, and he was aware that he did not have a legitimate claim. In fact, when we read about sort of the beginning days of his rule, it begins by him acknowledging that he has no mandate, he has no legitimacy, that he is not there because the people are confident that he is God's king or even a good king, but only he is there because of the discontentment of the children of Israel. And so he devises a plan whereby he can sort of secure the allegiance and loyalty of the children of Israel. Now you say, preacher, that's fascinating, that's amazing, but what does it have to do with my life? Well, when I read the story of Jeroboam, I find in him a picture of what the devil wants to do in your life and in mine. In fact, I'd say this, that Jeroboam is a pretty good picture of the devil from his name to his nature to his actions. Everything about his life bespeaks the notion that he was a wicked man. And if he's a wicked man, then he is a child of that wicked one. He is a perfect representation of what Satan seeks to do. Let me notice a few things and then we'll preach. First, I want you to notice with me the founding of his throne. His throne was not legitimate, but rather it was something that he had crafted, that he had uh, officiated, that he had instilled, that he had sanctioned. And that sort of reminds me of the devil, because, you know, the devil has a throne. The Bible calls him the God of this world, but he's not the rightful heir of this world. He's not the rightful authority over this world. He certainly is not the rightful God over God's creation, but he has usurped the place of God and is an illegitimate ruler over this world. When I read how he established his throne, this Jeroboam, there's a few things that remind me of the devil. One, and I always, I'm a name person. I love to look at names in the Bible because uh, more often than not, they have great significance. Do you know what Jeroboam's name means? It means the people will contend. Now, isn't that a beautiful name? Doesn't that make perfect sense? If he is the man that leads this sort of rebellion against the rightful king, doesn't it make sense that his name would be associated with the idea that the people are going to rebel against their rightful authority? Can I tell you this? The devil uh, tells this lie to every single person that he ensnares that he's going to help you throw off the authority of God. But can I tell you, listen, authority is not something that you have to recognize for it to exist. 
There's all kinds of authority that mankind does not exist or does not recognize, but it still exists. And can I say mankind may not choose to recognize the authority of God, but sooner or later every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess. You may be angry that God's in charge. You may be defiant that God is in charge. But God is still God irrespective of how we feel about that. So He is a grassroots leader of the people and even His name bespeaks the notion that He is encouraging the people to rebel against God's King, to defy God's King, to stand against God's King. And that certainly is a lie. Can I tell you this? Uh, the devil is not interested uh, in, in helping you put God in chains. He's interested in uh, you helping yourself put yourself in chains. And that's what Jeroboam did. He didn't kick Rehoboam off the throne. Instead, he put the people in chains. So I see his name, it reminds me. And when I look at how he built his throne, the Bible says in Jeroboam, verse 25, built Shechem in Mount Ephraim. I don't have a little note for this in my, in my outline, but I'm just going to notice that he built it in a high place. You know why? He wanted, he wanted to be exalted. He could have built it anywhere. He could have built it in the well-watered plains of Jordan. He could have built it down by the river of Jordan. He could have built it anywhere he wanted to. He could have built it up in the valley of Megiddo where the battle of Armageddon will take place. But instead, he chose to build it in a mountain. Why did he do that? Well, he thought much of himself. Sort of reminds me of the devil who said, I will arise. I will be like the Most High. He seeks to have the preeminence and the dominion wherever he's at. The Bible tells us when he built his throne, he built it sort of in two places. He begins in a place called Shechem. Now, Shechem is a fascinating place in the Bible. You can study through it. First time it's mentioned is whenever Abraham passes through there. Later on, we read about uh, Shechem, uh, the uh, son of the leader of Shechem, taking uh, one of Jacob's daughters unto himself, sort of kidnapping her and forcing her into marriage. It's an amazing place to study through the Bible. But simply when you look at the name Shechem, it reminds me of sort of the devil's strategy. Do you know what the name Shechem means? It means the back or the shoulder. In other words, that portion of you that you would turn towards someone were you standing in defiance of them. I would say this, him, Jeroboam, knowing the significance of these places, knowing what they mean, knowing what they're associated with, he chose a place associated with defiance to set his throne. It reminds me of this. Listen, the devil, when he sought to exalt himself against God, it was number one to defy God. Uh, you say, preacher, uh, you know, why is it that a believer, that a Christian uh, should separate from worldliness? For a very simple reason. Satan is the God of this world. And Satan is against everything that God is doing. Therefore, whatever this world is doing, broadly speaking, I understand we live in this world, we have to function in this world, but there is a spirit of iniquity that functions in this world, that pervades this world. And as such, hey, listen, whatever direction the world is going, God's people ought to be going the other direction. You say, why is that, preacher? Because Jeroboam, just like the devil in his dealings with God, he sought to turn his back and to show defiance. One of the worst things, we didn't really have none of it this week. Of course, I don't deal with the kids too directly because I have to choose between my sanity or the children sometimes during VBS week. But uh, our, our good workers, they, they labor directly with the kids. I didn't have to deal with much defiance. Uh, from children this week, uh, kids had a pretty good attitude and everything. And, uh, you know, you get them tired enough and they pretty much just sort of go go along. But, uh, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy, I'm sure you've seen children do this. Maybe your own child has done this when angry at you, has turned their back on you, has turned away from you. And in doing that, they're trying to defy you and show you that you don't run them, that you don't govern them. In the same way, Jeroboam had turned his back on God's plan for Israel 
as a nation in the same way that the devil has turned his back on God, is uninterested in hearing what God has to say. Then the Bible tells me this. He began in Shechem. He built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein. But he wasn't content to stay there. The Bible says he went out from thence and built Penuel. Now, Penuel is a fascinating place in the Bible. You probably remember it from Genesis chapter 37, whenever, or 33, excuse me, whenever Jacob goes and he's getting ready to meet his brother Esau, he thinks Esau's about to kill him, and he sends his family over the river Jabbok to, to, to spare them from Esau's predations, and there alone in a place called Penuel, Jacob wrestles with God. Now, you know how that story goes, how that Jacob is triumphing over God in his own strength and God reaches out, touches the hollow of his thigh and cripples Jacob to show Jacob that only through submission, only through weakness could he triumph with God. But isn't it interesting? I mean, listen, you you think if me and you with the King James Bible know what these places mean, you think Jeroboam growing up in the land of Israel, you think he didn't know what these places meant. He chose that place distinctly. You know why? Because he wanted to show God that he intended to wrestle with God. In other words, the word penul means to face God. Now, isn't this interesting? He begins at a place which means to turn your back on God. But he's not content just to turn his back on God. Now he moves to a place where he wants to face God in defiance. I would say it this way, that Jeroboam's plan was to defy God, but not content there, he wanted to defeat God. He said, I'll go to Penuel, I'll wrestle with God, but I won't lose like Jacob did. I'll beat God. Once and for all. You know, that's sort of the way the devil is. When it started out, he merely wanted to be like the Most High, but now, if he could, he'd destroy the Most High. So the founding of this throne sort of reminds me of the devil. But then notice with me the feebleness of his throne. The Bible says in verse 26, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. You know what he understood? He understood his throne having no legitimacy. There was no real power behind it. The only power that existed, he had a throne because the people were willing to follow him. And he knew if the people ever wised up and woke up and said, why are we following this fool? We're going to go back to a rightful king. He had no power to keep them under his control. Can I just give you some news this morning? Hey, listen, the devil has no rightful claim over the throne of your life. If he governs your life, if he rules you, it's because you have allowed him to rule you. And all all that it takes, just like with Jeroboam, all the people had to do was say, well, I'm done with this nonsense. And there would have been nothing Jeroboam. He was one man. There was nothing he could have done to keep them there. In the same way, you and I, if we wake up and say, why am I letting the devil run my life when I belong to God? There's nothing the devil can do to stop you from turning around and going back to God. I see the feebleness of his throne. And you know what that led to? Notice the fear of his throne. Now this is what's interesting. Jeroboam says, I'm not a rightful king. I'm not a legitimate king. There's no reason for the people to follow me, but I have to find a way to keep them loyal and following me. And this is what he says, verse 27. He says, if this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Jeroboam knew that the only hope that he had to keep his kingdom was to prevent the people from going to Jerusalem to worship. If, they, if he could keep them from the altar, listen now, he could keep them under his control. Can I ask you this question? You ever wonder why the devil seems to have such a problem with church? Isn't it funny, man? I mean, listen, on on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Thursday or a Friday, things go just smooth as silk. 
But if it's church day, if it's Wednesday, the devil will fight you tooth and toenail to keep you out of the house of God. Could it be the devil knows something that a lot of Christians don't? And that's that the key to success in the spiritual life is being faithful to the house of God. Now let me preface what I'm about to preach this morning. I know we just had VBS. And I know you're here this morning. And I know that is a feat of strength and will that is beyond measure. I'm serious when I say that you've made the choice to come even when you're tired, when you're weary, when you're worn out. So please don't interpret my preaching this morning as fussing. I'm proud of the house of God. I'm proud of our church folks. Can I remind you that the reason the devil fights you so much is he knows that all it takes is for you to slip out of church and chances are he's got you where he wants you. Isn't it amazing? He said, if I can just keep them out of church, I can keep them away from the king. And that's the devil's mentality as well. If he can keep you out of church. Now, somebody's going to say, preacher, uh, God is not confined to these walls and to these pews. And I say amen to that. But can I remind you that God has still chosen the local church. And while it is true, God can work outside the local church. And oftentimes he does. He has likewise chosen to work inside the local church. Because the Bible tells me he loved the church. And he gave himself for it. So Jeroboam says, if I can keep them from Jerusalem, if I can keep them from the house of God, if I can keep them from the altar, I can keep them under my control. If they go down there, it won't be long. They'll throw off the yoke of my authority and they'll go back to their rightful king. So he devised a plan whereby he could prevent them from going to the house of God. Or if they went to the house of God, he could prevent them from deriving anything meaningful out of that experience. And the devil, listen, if he can't keep you out of church, he'll keep church out of you. If he can't keep you from coming through the doors, he'll make sure that you don't enjoy and gain and encourage yourself when you're in the doors. The battle don't end when you come through those doors, friend. The battle begins when you come through those doors. It it, it ain't like you come in and can say, I'm here now. Now I can just relax and let my guard down. No, listen, your flesh and the devil himself will fight you tooth and toenail to keep you from getting the help that you need when you're at the house of God. And that's what Jeroboam does for the children of Israel. Notice three things he worked hard to prevent from happening. Number one, I would say this morning, Jeroboam worked to prevent them from encountering God in worship. Look what it says in verse 28. It says, Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. Here's what he understood. He couldn't go to the people of God and say, Give up on God. He couldn't just show up and say give up on God because it was too ingrained in them. He understood if he showed up and just said just quit worshiping, just quit going to church, just quit going to God, then they would look to him they would say you're crazy, you're wicked, you're vile. So here's what he had to do. He could not remove worship, so he had to replace worship. He could not keep them from the house of God, but he could change the kind of house that they went to. Now how did he go about doing this? Notice three things. Number one, He weakened their commitment to God. Isn't it amazing what he says in verse 28? He makes these two golden calves. And the first thing he says to him is, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Seven times a year, the Jew was mandated to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and to worship there. And the way that he gets into their heart and into their mind 
is by indulging and humoring their natural aversion to duty and responsibility. And he comes along and he says, isn't it awful inconvenient that God asks you to go up to Jerusalem seven times a year? He says, who is God to demand that you should have to take your time, your money, and your energy and go to Jerusalem? Why can't we just create a more convenient place of worship here? Can I tell you, I don't know the numbers of people that I've seen get out of church over the years because they prioritized convenience over consecration. Hey, listen, I, I want you to understand this morning. I, I, I could, I drive 25 minutes to get here and there's people drive twice that to get here. And I, I'm not fussing at anybody, but I'm just saying this. Listen, if you found a place that you can find God, if it takes you 10 minutes further to get there, it's worth it. I, I've seen a lot of people sell short the place that God is working in their life to save five minutes of a drive, 10 minutes of a drive, even 15 minutes of a drive. And I'd say this, listen, if that's where the well is, that's where you're going to go to get water. Uh, digging a cistern that don't give you nothing ain't going to help you. It may be three minutes down the road, but digging a cistern that don't give you fresh water ain't going to help you. If you got to go there to get fresh water, that's where you'll go if you want to thrive. And I'd say in your life and mine, very often, what the bargain that the devil tries to play in our mind, be it in anything, and it doesn't have to be church attendance, sometimes he convinces us that we need to step away from serving the Lord. Sometimes he convinces us that we need to step away from our prayer life, step away from the Word of God, step away from serving Him, step away from witnessing. And invariably, you know how he always approaches it. He always comes to you and says, God's asking too much of you. You know why he says that? Because he's, he's denigrating and he is disrespecting the cross of Calvary. You and I do what we do for God because we owe a debt to God and we love Him because of what He did on Calvary. To suggest that God's asking too much of us is to suggest that what He did for us wasn't very much in the first place. So He comes along and He says, listen, why should you have to go to all this great length? Hey, why, why, why should you have to go in serve in, in, in VBS? Why should you have to go in and do new moves? Why, why should you have to give that much of your paycheck. Why should you have to do these things? After all, isn't God asking too much? And can I tell you, our flesh will listen to that tune. Our flesh will sing along to that tune because we naturally do not want to engage in spiritual things. So the first thing he does is he weakened their commitment to God. He stroked their ego. He told them, said, you're already doing too much, but is anything too much for God to ask? I'd say there's nothing God could ask of us that is too much for us to give to Him. Number two, look at verse 28, the end of it. He takes these gods, these golden calves, and He makes this statement. He says, Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now, this is not the first time a golden calf has appeared in the nation of Israel. In fact, the very first thing that the children of Israel did when they got on the other side of the Red Sea and got at the foot of Mount Sinai was they crafted a golden calf. By the way, isn't it interesting, Brother Charlie, what started off as one has now become two. Because sin multiplies. Idolatry multiplies. We'll say to ourselves, well, i got this little pet thing in my life that I'll put above the Lord, but that's the only thing. That's just going to be the very single thing that is precious to me. No, that ain't how it works. Pretty soon there will be a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth. And eventually God's going to be somewhere down there scraping the bottom of your priority list. Comes and He says, these are these golden calves. They've appeared again. They've come back again. And here's what He said. These are the gods that brought you up out of Egypt. I'd say this, not only did He weaken their commitment, but number two, He altered their concept of God. Now, why did He alter their concept of God? 
Because the God of the Bible had made very clear that he could only be worshipped at Jerusalem in those days. So you know what he does? He creates a new God that just conveniently, Brother Ken, what a coincidence that this new God can be worshipped in the old place that you want him to. Here's what he did. He said, that God don't fit with what we're doing, so let's just make a new God that fits with what we're doing. He made their concept of God subject to convenience and whim and personal gratification. And when he did this, it was enough to lure the people away from the true God. Boy, listen, how depraved my flesh and your flesh is. How wicked it is. It'll grope and grab for anything that will give it an excuse to indulge itself instead of serving God. And that's what the devil will do. He'll come along and say, why is God being so difficult? Why is God demanding so much? And then here's what he'll do. He'll say, you know, the God that loves you wouldn't ask that much of you. Surely the God that you've been taught about ain't the real God because He wouldn't ask so. He wouldn't be so mean. He wouldn't be so demanding. He wouldn't scrutinize your life in the way that He does. And pretty soon what happens is we've transformed our picture and concept of God away from the God of the Bible and to the God of our convenience and our luxury. He altered their concept of God. And then notice what He did because this, verse 29. The Bible says He took one, He set the one in Bethel, and the other put He in Dan. And this thing became a sin. This is why it became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. He said, we've opened a satellite temple here. We've got our main campus right here. We've got our satellite campus over here in Bethel. And you can go to whichever one's more convenient for you. You can go whichever one has the best coffee. You can go to whichever one has the service at your particular time. Just go. Whatever works for you, whatever makes sense to you, just at your convenience, go. But here's what the people did. They picked one. You know why? Because even in their heart and mind, they understood this nonsense of the idea that God would show up here and show up there and could be in it. Even they knew that was nonsense. And so here's what they did. They said, we're no longer going to go to Jerusalem. We're now going to go to Dan. And they chose to go to that place and that place only. You know what it meant? If they was going to Dan, it meant they weren't going to Jerusalem. Well, can I tell you something that you, me, and the Holy Ghost all know because we got a Bible in front of us? God wasn't showing up at Dan. He wasn't showing up at Dan. You know why? Because he didn't say, I'll be at Dan. He said, I'm going to be in Jerusalem. That's where I have set my name. I'll be in Jerusalem. And he didn't say, oh, you text me and let me know which one you're going to be at. I'll show up there. Instead, he said, no, I'm going to be the same place I've always been. And you're either going to come where I'm at or you're not going to be around me at all. And they said, well, that's okay. We'll just stay where we're at. You know what he did? Not only did he weaken their commitment of God, he altered their concept of God. But finally, he severed their contact with God. Here they are going to a house of worship. Here they are going and looking at a God in their minds. Little g, a God, a graven image. But the only problem is God wasn't there. They were going to a place. They were engaging in worship. They were investing their time, their talents, their treasures. They were doing all those things. All the sort of trappings of what public worship involves. They were only missing one thing. And He just happens to be the most important thing. And that's God Himself. Jeroboam said, here's what's going to happen. If they go down to Jerusalem, that, 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 that uh, priest, he's going to get up and he's going to start reading that Bible where it talks about Jerusalem being the place where his name is set. He's going to start reading about how, how King Solomon, who many of them, he was their king, how that when he consecrated the temple, that the glory of God fell upon that place and how that God had made promises about that particular mountain, that hill, that house, and said that if anybody sins and, and are chastened of God, they can go to that place, they can turn to that place, they can pray to that place. And they're just going to be constantly reminded that they're living wrong if they go to that place. So here's what he said, i got to keep them from going to that place. 
That's the reason the devil's so interested in keeping you out of church. Because I'm going to be honest with you, the TV preacher ain't going to preach on your sin. He's not. You know why? Because he's trying to get your donations. That's why he ain't going to preach on your sin. Hey, listen, I, I mean, listen, old Creflo Dollar, he ain't going to give it to you straight and true. Old T.D. Jakes ain't going to help you. That's all right. We're preaching, aren't we? That's okay. Old Joel, he ain't going to help you. You know why? Because he's interested in keeping that monetary income flow coming in. Anybody that's been around a local house of God understands that you don't build empires, you don't get rich, you, you don't build wealth in laboring in the house of God. And that's true for the pastor, it's true for anybody engaged, it's true for the people of God. It's a labor of love is what it is. And because of that, because hopefully the house of God is not a place of filthy lucre, not a den of thieves and of, of money changers, because of that, it's a place where truth can prevail. But if he can get you into a place that's more about commerce than it is about consecration, then he knows it won't be long. You won't be hearing from God anymore. And so he says, I've got to get them away from the house of God. And the first thing he does is he keeps them from encountering. He knew if they went to Jerusalem and got a taste of the real thing, they wouldn't come back to Dan and involve themselves in that phony stuff. So he said, I've got to keep them from going there. Number two, notice what he did. The Bible says in verse 31, And he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of people. I found this, high places tend to have the lowest of people. That's all right. Just go ahead and take that, file it away, whatever. High places tend to have the lowest of people. And that's what happens here. He made a, a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people which were not of the sons of Levi. Here's the second thing he did. First, he, he sought to prevent them from encountering God through worship. Number two, he sought to prevent them from inquiring of God through worship. In other words, uh, he said if they go down there, they won't hear the truth. They're going to hear the Word of God. It's going to pierce their hearts. It's going to remind them that what they're doing is wrong. So I have to keep them from hearing the truth of God if I'm going to keep them under my control. It's interesting when the Bible talks about these high places in the Old Testament. When you come to the New Testament, you find an interesting religious entity and place that there's actually no place described or no function or no pattern for it in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we find a place called a synagogue. A synagogue. Now, you won't find anywhere but Charlie in the Old Testament where God says, build a synagogue. But we do have a little bit of an idea of probably where synagogues came from. The Bible tells us that for the tribe of Levi, because they were not given a portion in the land, they instead were given their inheritance in the Lord, that God made provision that for the Levites they would be allowed places in the various sundry cities throughout Israel. And in those places, one of their responsibilities was to teach the Word of God. And they would have these houses, these places where men could come and hear the truth of God, hear it expounded, hear it taught. And very likely that's what ultimately developed into the synagogues of the New Testament. Here was the problem that Jeroboam had. He said, I can keep them from going to Jerusalem, but what are we going to do about all these Levites running around teaching the truth? i got to do something to stop that. So he said, here's what I could do. I could go in and shut down all the synagogues or I could displace them with my own places of instruction. He develops high places. High places is a biblical terminology of sort of a satellite location for pagan worship. It's always baffled me. I, and I'm not trying to offend nobody. I just, I don't even have to try. It just seems to happen. It's always baffled me when churches, uh, you know, you'll see churches. There's one in town called The Grove. And they may be sweet people. They may love God. They may be more spiritual than I am. But I've always thought, what scriptural tone deafness to name a church the grove. 
groves all through the Bible were associated with pagan worship. With, with, with places where people that did not know the true God would go and worship the sun and worship the moon and worship the stars and worship the trees. And, and that's sort of what these high places were. They were maybe a little more developed than a grove. They were a structure. They were a place where worship would take place. But they were not biblical in any sense. They rather were places where they would go. And it was sort of buffet religion. You could worship whatever God you wanted. And that's why there were many high places. If you want to go over here and worship Ashtaroth, there's the house of Ashtaroth. If you wanted to come over here and worship Milcom, there's the, there's the house of Milcom. If you wanted to go over to worship at the house of Baal, you could go to the house of Baal. Just choose what you want. Choose whichever truth best fits your life and go and enjoy yourself. Here's what he did twofold. I want you to listen carefully. Number one, he transformed the place of spiritual instruction into a place of sensual experience. Whereas used to, they'd go down to the place where the Levite was and say, tell me the Word of God. Now they'd go down to the high place and they'd say, make me feel something. Whereas used to, they'd go down to the place where the Levite was and say, tell me the truth about my life, about how I'm living. Tell me what God says. Tell me what the Word of God teaches. Tell me if I'm living right now. They go down to whatever convenient Burger King Christianity place they want to go to where you can have it your way and go in and burn incense and engage in all sorts of lasciviousness and lewdness and, and, and wickedness so that they could just enjoy themselves and feel something. See, here's the twofold thing. If, if the devil can't keep you from going to church, he can at least make church an experience that is centered more on sensuality than spirituality. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. I ain't afraid to feel something in the house of God. I ain't afraid for God to stir my heart. I ain't afraid to enjoy myself preaching and worshiping. But I also understand that whatever experience takes place in my heart and life in the house of God, it ought to be an outgrowth of an extension of the, the spiritual work that God's doing in my heart, in my mind, and not disassociated with it. Listen, anything that is, and I want to be careful how I say this, I, I, anything that is not centered around spiritual intellect. And when I say that, I'm careful. I don't mean intelligence, because I'd be left out in the rain if it took that. But I mean something that is distinctly related to our comprehension, acknowledgement of, and knowledge of who God is and what He's done for me. Anything that is not associated with that is not of God. In other words, listen, you say, Preacher, can I shout? Yes, as long as we know what we're shouting about. Preacher, can I run a lap? Yes, as long as we know what we're running for. But this thing, and you see it all through contemporary Christianity, you see it in the contemplative prayer movement, and, and uh, you see it in this, this, this notion, it's really akin to Eastern mysticism is what it is, this idea that we're all going to get alone and empty our minds and try to hear some voice. That ain't what prayer is. Read your Bible. That ain't what prayer is. Hey, that's a charlatan's trick. That's what that is. That's meant to get you to feel something that ain't of God. Instead, true worship, real worship, is sourced in, in, in a coherent acknowledgement and understanding of who God is and what He's done in our heart and life. So here's what he did. He said, we're going to get away from that teaching the Word of God. We're just going to go and we're going to feel something. Now listen, I enjoy feeling something. But if I'm going to feel something, I want to feel something that God's done and that's rooted in the truth of who God is and what he's done in my life. So there was, he did this through a change in place. He said, we'll transform the place of spiritual instruction into a place of sensual experience. Number two, there was a change in personnel. Look at the end of verse 31. He said he made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. Here's what he did. He traded the teachers of truth 
for peddlers of perversion. Now I want you to listen. I want you to listen up real good to what I'm about to say. I'm not some paragon of spiritual height and development. I'm not suggesting to you that I'm anything but a sinner saved by the grace of God. But I do believe that God has called people that teach and preach the truth of the Word of God and stand as representative of the things of God to a holy calling and a higher plane of living. And I believe it is the responsibility of every person that is teaching, preaching, testifying, sharing the Word of God to live a life, to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. Instead, here's what he did. We're going to get rid of those people that are constantly talking to people about righteousness. And instead, we're going to get people that don't know nothing about righteousness. And here's what they're going to do. Like Paul said, they're going to speak of their own when he talked about worldliness. He said they're just going to testify of their own. They're going to testify of what they know, and that's the things of ungodliness and unrighteousness and the world. Listen, I, I, we're not a formal place, I don't think. I mean, I, I don't quite see how we could be and, and me be the pastor. We're not a formal place, but hey, we ought to be a holy place. We shouldn't be a haughty place, you understand. We shouldn't be heady and high-minded, and I don't believe we are. But we ought to be a holy place. And it ought to be that our desiring coming to the house of God is not for permissiveness, for somebody to get up and sanction and validate however we're living, but instead for somebody to face us with the truth, the Word of God. You know why he... Mm, you know why he made the lowest of people priests? Because he didn't want them ever saying anything critical. He made the lowest of people priests because he didn't ever want them saying anything negative. He didn't want them getting up and saying anything like you need to live righteous, you need to live holy, you need to get rid of this sin, you need to get rid of that sin, you need to be holy as he which hath called us is holy. You know what that produces? A very positive environment. It's amazing, man. I, listen, there, there, there's people say, well, preacher, you know, sometimes there's fussing and fighting around the word, uh, the, the house of God. Yeah, in places where stuff gets done, there is. But if you go to a place where no one is ever going to tell you an uncomfortable truth from the word of God, of course you're always going to leave happy. Of course you're always going to live, leave buoyant upon the, 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 the drunk on your own pride and arrogance. And so here's what he did. He said, if I can't get them to quit going to the house of God, I'll just change the house of God into a place that does not help them, that does not serve them in any way. Now, there was still a problem, though. So he could stop them from going up regularly to worship at Jerusalem by creating this false house of worship. And then he could deal with the synagogues because he'd just displace them so they wouldn't go to somebody and tell them the truth. They'd go to some place that'd stroke their ego and calm and soothe their conscience. But there's another problem. See, seven times a year... Every Israelite was commanded to go up and celebrate a feast at Jerusalem. Sometimes it was the feast of, of Pentecost. Sometimes it was the feast of, of unleavened bread and the Passover. But seven times a year, they had to go to that place. There wasn't no getting around. And what's really bad is some of those, some of those feasts, they were sort of severe, like the feast of unleavened bread, where you would go and you'd put away all leavened bread and that's just all you'd eat on. Listen, I know we have Lord's Supper around here and the kids always want to eat the crackers when we're done. And, uh, <laughs> But imagine living off of it for a week solid. Imagine that's all you eat is that bread and drink. Well, it wasn't a pleasant feast. But then there were some feasts that they enjoyed. There were some feasts like the Feast of Pentecost that were almost were like a celebration. So there were some times they'd go to the house of God and it would be severe. Well, Jeroboam wasn't worried about that because just the natural flesh doesn't want to be engaged in those severe moments. But then there were some that were celebrations. And he said, we've got to do something about this. 
In other words, we could say it this way. We can't have them going to church and enjoying themselves. Because if they go to church and enjoy themselves, it ain't going to be long. They're going to keep going back. They're going to taste and see that the Lord is good. And then they're going to want to keep going back and get more of it. So he said, here's what we're going to have to do. And he picked the most celebratory feast that the children of Israel had. He chose the Feast of Tabernacles. And look what it says here. The Bible says down in verse number 32, And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. So he's replacing one feast with another feast. Sacrificing, or it says, and he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel. And he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. Now listen carefully. Three things he had to do if he was going to keep them under control. Number one, he had to prevent them from encountering God in worship. Number two, he had to prevent them from inquiring of God through worship. Number three, he had to prevent them from enjoying God in worship. If he could make it a drudgery to go there, and if he could make it a party to go to his feast, then he knew he'd have them hooked. Can I tell you one of the strategies of of Satan is to make church boring? It is. We've lost a whole generation of kids because of dead worship. They've gone after this carnal, sensual, modernist movement because it makes them feel something. Because every time they're in the house of God and felt something, somebody settled down. And so they went after something because something was better than nothing. You know what would have been better than nothing or something? The real thing would have been better than that. And so Jeroboam says, we got to do something about this. So here's what he did. Two things. One, I see there was a change in feasts. This feast was meant to displace the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was when the children of Israel would dwell in booths or in tents that they made from branches for a week. And this Feast of Tabernacles, it would usually take place during the harvest. And so it was almost like a big festival. They would all gather their families would. They would make these booths and they would all dwell out in the open field. And it was a time of feasting and it was a time of fellowship one with another and with God. Jeroboam says, we can't have that. We can't have them going down there and enjoying themselves. We're going to have to replace it. Listen to what the Bible tells us about the Feast of Tabernacles. It says in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 39, also in the 15th day of the seventh month. So you notice what he did, right? He did a different feast a month later. That'll be important here in a moment. He says, In the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when ye have gathered in the fruit of the land, ye shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. And ye shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook, and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God, Seven days. So this, listen, this wasn't a weeping festival. This was a shouting festival. Rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. Ye shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Ye shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feasts 
of the Lord. So stop and think about this for a moment. All the children of Israel were to gather in fields, in tents, booths is the Bible word for it, and they were to feast on the harvest of the land. I don't know about you, but that's the party I'd show up to. I mean, seven days straight and just sitting around and worshiping and shouting and somebody say amen here, eating. Amen. I mean, listen, that's the kind of, I mean, that's the kind of church that I would go to. Jeroboam said, this is a problem. We've got to do something about this. So he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to replace that genuine feast with a false feast. And he says, we're going to change some things about it. In fact, I'd say this. There was a change in feast, but in that change, there was a change in focus. Stop and think about a few of these thoughts with me and we'll be done. Number one, the Feast of Tabernacles was meant to look inward. It was meant to remind Israel that they were pilgrims in this world and were not to make this world their home. Part of the reason they dwelt in booths is God was reminding them that they lived as strangers in the land of Egypt. And when they came out of the land of Egypt, though God would bring them into their own land, that own land was just for a time, just for a season. But they weren't to drive their tent stakes too deep. And to remind them every year they had to go on a Holy Ghost camping trip out in the middle of nowhere when they had to feast on the goodness of the land and they had to rejoice in the goodness of God because He wanted them reminded that they were separate from this world. Here's what Jeroboam does. He said, we're going to do it that way. We're not going to ask anybody to go out and dwell in the tents like a bunch of vagabonds, like a bunch of of homeless people. Everybody can just enjoy themselves in the house of God. And instead of it being a time when we'll focus on being different from the world, he said it's going to be a time when we'll sacrifice cows and sacrifice bullocks and we'll just get together. And it won't be about faith anymore. It'll be about food. I thought it'd get quiet when I said that. We're the eatingest church I've ever been in, and I praise God for it. I mean, honestly, nobody starved to death that goes to Walridge Baptist Church. But understand that, listen, and I'm going to say it this way. Here's what he changed it to. Now worship was about consumption instead of consecration. It wasn't about what they could give God. It was about what they could get from God. It was no longer about reminding themselves that they were not of this world, but they were of a heavenly place. It was no longer about looking in themselves and asking themselves this, have I gotten too attached to this world? By spending a week out there in the wilderness, they were to remind themselves that this world was not their home. But now it's no longer about reminding yourself that you're different than this world, that you're separate from this world, that this world is not your friend and it is not your home. But it is now simply about getting all you can and consuming all that's available. I'd say this, one of the ways that the devil destroys Bible Christianity is making it about the service of self instead of serving the Lord. It's no longer about reminding ourselves this world is not our home. It's now about making this world a better home. Oh my, we might just stumbled on something. Hey, listen. I'm all for conservation. You know what conservation means? Conservation means if you catch a fish and you're going to eat it, you throw it back. But this whole thing of, of, of transforming God into nature and nature into God and treating it as though our chief response... Listen, I, we're to be good stewards of God's creation. But let us never forget whose creation it is. It's God's creation. And this whole notion that your and my chief purpose is to lower the sea levels and try to cool things down and to worship. Listen, while we're aborting unborn children, we're we're, we're derailing massive infrastructure uh, projects so that we can save the snarted snail, dart, egg, turtle, whatever it is. 
This notion that mankind ought to be subjected unto creation instead of creation being subjected unto mankind. You know what that mentality is? Is not this world is not our home. It's this world is our only home, so we better make it as good as possible. Can I say that this, this modern day Christianity buy in this stuff? It, it is a completely unscriptural, anti-biblical, anti-Christ attitude. Now, listen, I'm not saying you ought to go start a tire fire, but I am saying you ought not feel guilty about being master of the Lord's creation either. I would say this. That was just an aside. I don't even know how that happened. I don't, just sort of happened, didn't it? Feast of Tabernacles, it looked inward. It looked inward and it was introspective and it was meant to say, have I really been living as a pilgrim? In this world, they changed it from that. They changed it from focusing on pilgrimage to focusing on party and partaking. Number two, the Feast of Tabernacles looked backward. Remember what it said in our text? It was to remind Israel that God had led them out of Egypt and sustained them. In other words, a big feature of it was thankfulness. They're supposed to get together and talk about how good God had been to them, that He had brought them out of Egypt, that they were sold strangers in the land of Egypt and and deserved to die there. But God in His mercy had brought them out of that darkness by the blood of the Lamb and led them into a new land where they could enjoy Him. Jeroboam says, we can't have that. If we have that, they're going to want to start going back to Jerusalem to the place that God has chosen to put His name there. And they're going to start worshiping the true God. So we've got to change it from that. And now, listen to what it's going to be about. It's no longer, we're going to talk about what God did bringing us out of Egypt. Instead, we're going to say, these be the gods that brought us out of Egypt. He didn't want them being reminded of where they'd come from. Because if they were reminded of where they'd come from, they might go back to the one that had brought them out. He couldn't have that, so he changed it. Now, listen to what it's about. It's about gratification instead of gratitude. Now it's about being reminded and told how great and glorious you are. Because can I remind you of something? If that golden calf was the God that brought them out of Egypt, guess who created the golden calf? The children of Israel. You know what that meant? That made them God over their own life. It gave them this lurid notion of liberty that's unbiblical, that's unreal, that's untrue. And now, you know what it's about? It's about satisfying self instead of remembering the one that brought you out of bondage. I would say not only that, the Feast of Tabernacles, it didn't just look inward and backward, but it looked forward. The Feast of Tabernacles pointed to the Millennial Kingdom when Israel will dwell together in safety all throughout the earth. In other words, it was meant to remind Israel that satisfaction was not found in earthly pleasure, but in heavenly promises. It was to remind them that they were not truly going to be satisfied until one day when the Messiah sat upon the throne and that this was just a short pilgrimage. I would say it this way, Jeroboam, he changed the focus to temporal pleasures instead of eternal promises. Can I tell you a lot of how the devil undercuts what God's doing in this world is he makes us feel and think and seem as though the pinnacle of this world is to achieve the greatest possible pleasure, power, prosperity, and convenience that we possibly can. He, in other words, makes the house of God a monument to this world system instead of to the things of God. And you know what will happen when he does that? It won't be long. You'll just forget about God. Because what do you need him for, after all, if it's all about achieving earthly pleasure and enjoyment and luxury and recreation? Listen, I'm not against any of those things. I like to think I enjoy myself in this world. But I understand this world is not the be-all, end-all of everything. And then there's a phrase used here. I thought this was interesting. The Bible says Jeroboam did this, uh, that which he had devised of his own heart. Isn't that interesting? 
I mean, the Holy Ghost just goes out of His way to tell us that. I mean, I think we all get the drift from reading it that Jeroboam just created this out of whole cloth. But the Holy Ghost wanted to say, now pay attention to this right here. This all came out of His own heart. That's interesting. The Feast of Tabernacles was a place where they dwelt in tents that were created of natural resources that God had created. Isn't that amazing? When they dwelt in that booth, they were being reminded that God had provided everything for them that they needed. It reminded Israel that whatever they accomplished in building towns, laying foundations, building a system, was always secondary to what God had provided for them Himself. They would leave the cities that they had built. They would leave the towns they had built. They would leave the businesses they would build, go out into the wilderness and enjoy fellowship with God in places that God alone had created and crafted. Here's what it was. It was a reminder to them that what they accomplished through their own wisdom and strength, no matter what that was, true peace came from God's authority and direction in their life. In other words, when they went out and did things God's way, they enjoyed greater peace and pleasure than they did when they went into the cities they had built of their own devices. Now, I want you to listen carefully. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I, I, I'm not saying God's against human advancement. I'm not saying God's against us enjoying and, and, and utilizing the minds that God has given us to advance in society. I'm not saying God's against any of that. And God wasn't against it then. He didn't forbid them from building cities. But He said, every year I want you to be reminded that all that you have comes only from my hand and my heart. Whatever you may craft, whatever benefit there may be in it, it is always secondary to the good things that I have provided for you. Jeroboam says, I can't have them being reminded that all these things have come from God. I have to have them being reminded that all these things have come from me. So he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get them to quit going to that feast and I'm going to create another feast out of my own head, my own heart. So that here's what they'll do. They won't go out into the wilderness like in the Feast of Booths and say, Boy, isn't God brilliant. Boy, isn't God wonderful. Boy, wasn't this a good idea. Look what we're doing out here. Isn't God gracious? Instead, they go down to Jeroboam's feast and they'd say, boy, wasn't Jeroboam smart to get this shindig together? Wasn't he bright to get all this going? Can I just encapsulate it? Listen carefully. Jeroboam changed the focus to human design instead of heavenly direction. He didn't want them being reminded that God's way is better. He wanted them being reminded that his way was better. Ah, listen. I'm not, I'm not against order in the house of God. In fact, I prefer it. I'm not against, I have notes when I get up to preach and, and I don't, I'm not sorry for that. I know there's some preachers around, they'd call you a heretic for getting up preaching with notes. I, I'd call a man for, I'd call a man irreverent for getting up and preaching, not having a clue what he's about to say. I'm not against that. I, you know, I, churches, they might want to put the sermon title in the bulletin. We don't do that around here, but that's just because we're lazy. I'm not opposed to it. But listen, let us never forget that if anything good is going to come out of what happens in these walls, it's going to, be, it's going to have to be divinely manifest and not deliberately manufactured. It ain't about human design. It, it ain't about drumming something up, man. Hey, it's about calling something down. It's not about just trying to figure out some system that works, but it's about finding the Spirit and the Savior that always works and letting Him have His will and His way. You know, the worst thing that could ever happen as far as the devil's concerned is for you to go to church and enjoy yourself. The worst thing that could happen to you as far as a lot of churches and preachers are concerned is for you to go to church and enjoy yourself. You say, what do we do? I'll let them just go ahead and suck on persimmons in. I don't care. 
Let's go to the house of God and enjoy ourselves. Because, listen, it's not to be a place of drudgery. It is a place of duty, but it's not to be a place of drudgery. And one of the things the devil does to try to get you to sour on the house of God is turn it into a dry, boring place where not even God himself would show up because there ain't nothing going on. It ought to be a place where God is welcome, where the Spirit of God is given liberty, and where the people of God rejoice in his goodness and grace as he works effectually in their heart and lives. Let's bow together this morning. Here's a question I want to ask you while a musician comes. Have you given the house of God the place it deserves in your life? Uh, you say, preacher, what's so good about the house of God? Well, the Lord loved it and gave himself for it, so he thinks a lot of it. Uh, if the devil can keep you out of the house of God, and I know he's not done it this morning, you're here under the sound of my voice. Th- listen, this past year, the house of God's been on assault. It's been deliberately attacked by the powers of evil to try to discourage and dissuade people from getting the help they need. And there's been a lot of folks that have let it sever and destroy their relationship with God. Why don't you make your mind up this morning that you're not going to let the devil keep you out of the place that God has called you to, but that you're going to find yourself where God has called you to, when God has called you to, doing what God has called you to, that God can get the glory out of your life. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.